0: Psalm ninety-five. 95, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and let us shout joyfully to him with psalms, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also, the sea is his. For it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down, and let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as in the day of Mesa. In the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who err in their heart and do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. Well, this is a psalm that was probably used on the Sabbath day in the Old Testament to call the Jews to public worship. This is a psalm that was used quite possibly at the temple, maybe in the synagogues throughout Israel. And it was there to remind the people of God and exhort the people of God to what is really one of the most important activities that God has given to man. And that, of course, is the act of worshipping. There really is no higher uh, act given unto men, says uh, John Stott. And A.W. Tozer, as well, in his book, Whatever Happened to Worship, uh, agreed that this is one of the most important of all human endeavors, is the right worship of God. Not only is it one of the most important endeavors of human activity, But it also is one of those activities for which God is actually looking for people to do for him, to serve him. If you remember in John chapter 4, Jesus has a theological conversation with an immoral woman at the well. A woman who's had multiple husbands and the man that she was living with was presently not her husband. And yet Jesus in his mercy came to this woman and spoke to her and and asked for a drink of water. And she said, uh, why is it that you being a Jew would ask me, a Samaritan, for water? Jesus, of course, said to her, well, if you knew who you were speaking to, you would ask him for water because I can give you living water, and if you drink of this water that I have, And he was speaking of the Holy Spirit, boys and girls. If you drink of this water that I have, you'll never get thirsty again. And now this woman, still thinking carnally about that answer that Jesus just gave, said, wow, that sounds great. If I can have this water, then I'll never need to come to the well. But she didn't quite understand yet. Her mind had not yet been fully enlightened into the truth. No, Jesus had to explain to her what he was talking about, that. He was talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that that was to come after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, after he's finished his work on the cross. Now, what's interesting in relation to what we're seeing tonight in Psalm 95 is that Jesus said that the Father is looking, looking, searching, is the word, for worshipers. Remember that The woman said to Jesus, you Jews say that you should worship on that mountain. pointing probably in the direction of Zion. And that we should worship, we believe, the Samaritans believe, we're supposed to worship on this mountain. And Jesus said to her that a day is coming and now is when you will worship neither on that mountain nor this mountain. But you will worship in spirit and truth. And he was talking about after he has completed his earthly ministry, After he cries out, it is finished on the cross. He ascends into heaven and will give the Holy Spirit. It won't matter geographically where you are. It won't matter anymore. The temple on Mount Zion. You won't have to go there three times a year as every male was called to do in the life of Israel. To go worship the true and living God. No, the Holy Spirit will build his church and he will build it of living stones. And he will fill that Temple, the New Covenant Temple, the New Testament Temple, with the Spirit of God. So what we see in this psalm is a call to worship, but what I want to impress upon you is everything we learn from this psalm tonight is even more important now because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Every principle that we learn in Psalm 95, a very popular psalm in the church. Everything we learn from this psalm is as important as it was. For the children of Israel, it's more important for you because we've been given more. We've been made the temple. You see, boys and girls, it's, it's not the building that's so much the church. You are the church. You're the stones. You're the living stones that make up the church. And the Holy Spirit comes into our midst when we gather together in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to show you tonight is three things from this psalm. Number one, we are called to worship God because he's our creator. Number one. Number two, we are called to worship God because he is our redeemer, secondly. And number three, we are called to heed God's warning that we would not harden our heart when he calls us to worship. Three things... Tonight that we see from Psalm 95. Number one, we are called to worship God because he's our creator. Number two, we are called to worship God because he is our redeemer. And number three, we are called to worship God and fear him lest we harden our hearts before him. We are to heed the warning that he gives us. So let's look at these uh, thoughts tonight. Now, first of all, the first one is coming from the first five verses of Psalm 95. Uh, this is a great psalm. Let me uh, recommend to you uh, you on YouTube, Sons of Korah have done a wonderful rendition of this psalm. I don't know if you know the Sons of Korah. They're a contemporary Christian band that uh, sings the psalms uh, almost exclusively. And uh, I don't know who put me on to them, but they do a wonderful rendition of this psalm, and I just put it out there for you kids who like music to Check out that psalm, Sons of Korah, K-O-R-A-H. I think they're an Australian band. Uh, And uh, anyway, Psalm 95. Now let's focus on these first opening verses here. He says, oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. There's the call. He's saying, come on, people of God, let's gather together. And of course, for us in the new covenant, let us come together in the name of Jesus Christ Because when we call upon the Lord in the name of Jesus, we invoke God's presence. Uh, Because to worship God rightly, we must worship Him in Christ. So he says, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Now, why would the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, need to exhort the church to worship? I think one of the reasons that we are... Exhorted and enjoined to worship God is because we are so disinclined to do it that sin has separated us from God, and even among the redeemed, we still have those remnant that remnant of sin within us that keep us from wanting to worship God. The flesh sometimes becomes strong and waxes uh, uh, in our in our life, and and covets the spirit, and the spirit lusts after the flesh, we are told, and there's this war. So there isn't always this desire to worship God. You'll you'll hear people sometimes say that worship is easy, and and it's not. Let me suggest to you, worship is not an easy endeavor. Uh, Prayer is not easy. Uh, Worship is not easy. To worship well, I think it's a very difficult task. I think it's a lot harder than we think it is, Uh, and I think it's probably because we don't try as hard as we should in worship. I think the the more you try to worship God in spirit and truth, the harder you try to worship well. I think the harder you'll really see that it is that you really need the grace of the Holy Spirit to to worship with a heart. Now he he enjoins them to sing for joy uh, to the Lord, to shout joyfully. Now shouting is loud. Okay, so I I think here the idea is that we we should uh have some volume in our praise to God, in our thanksgiving to God. I think, you know, I, I had one pastor say, you know, I don't care if they sing off key so much, I just want them to sing loudly. <laughs> and I thought that <laughs> there, there's some truth to that. You know, just, you know, loud and off key, you know, at least it's exuberant. All right? Uh, And and that's what I think the the psalmist is wanting here, some exuberance in worship. Worship is not to be dull and cold. We are not to come into the presence of the Almighty with a a heart that is sleepy and and, uh, weary of him. But we are to recognize who he is. Now, in these first five verses, what I'm arguing is that the psalmist enjoins us to And calls us to worship him because he is the creator. And we thought about that a little bit as we thought about the universe this morning. We talked about the stars and the galaxies and the billions uh, of stars that are out there. And how great, how large our God is. Our God is incomprehensible. That is, boys and girls, you cannot completely think about God in his being as he is. It's impossible with you having a finite mind to be able to understand everything about who it is you worship. Now, you can know Him. I'm not saying you can't know Him. You can apprehend God. Now, I think there is some truth to the idea that God is holy other, uh, but there is also the truth to the idea that He has revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures and in the person of Jesus Christ, and we can know Him truly. We can apprehend the truth of Of the God that we worship. But we do need to see that God is great. He is vast. So much vaster than I think we think of him ordinarily. And sometimes the the study of the creation is a helpful thing in order to help us appreciate the vastness of, of God. Notice that he says we need to come with a certain attitude in worship. Notice there's joy, verse 1b. Well, verse 1a, 2, sing for joy to the Lord. Verse 2, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Notice there the theme of of our redemption. I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. So we see that there needs to be joy. There needs to be gratitude. There needs to be exuberance. There needs to be a, a longing for him. For the Lord is a great God. We are to sing to him. That's a part of worship. Again, shout joyfully to him with psalms. Now, one of the things I want you to appreciate, young people, this is one of the things, when I thought about this sermon, I said to myself, one of the things I really want, especially the children in the church to appreciate, is that worship is coming into the presence of God. And and we see that. In verse 2a, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. What I want you to appreciate, boys and girls, is that corporate worship in the name of Jesus Christ, of the triune God, is, is it's not just singing a song or two and listening to the preacher talk, but there's more that's going on there. What we're doing is we, when we gather together and we call you to worship, what we are doing is we're, we are exhorting you, we are encouraging you to lift up your heart to God. And what do I mean by lift up your heart to God? Obviously, physically, I am not speaking about your little you know, beating heart here. But when we speak about lifting up your heart to God, that is, we are, we are trying to lift ourselves up and recognize that we are standing... Or bowing before the Almighty God. And that it's not just singing some songs together. But we're offering praise. We're offering thanksgiving. And, and this means that what we're trying to do is we are trying to sing unto the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've experienced this. I know I have. But the more I focus, it seems, and the more I'm able to concentrate... On the words and what I'm saying to God, I have found a physical reaction in my own body. The ability to sing better. That is, as I lift up my heart to God, and as I I enter into the presence of God, to give Him His due, to give Him the best worship that I can as a creature, still yet a sinner, but yet redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that I also find... That I am able to shout joyfully unto the Lord. And that I am able to sing with joy. Now what often happens, because we are sinners, often what happens is there, there is this disconnect between the mouth and the heart. And so, or, or you might say the mouth and the mind. So that we, we take our hymnal or we take our psalter and we, we open it up and we sing it. And, and certainly if it's familiar to us, we sing it. But what happens? Our eyes are here, and and our lips are here, but the mind is not here. The heart's not here. And and the mind begins to wander, and it begins to leap. Now, what are you doing when you do that? When you and I do that, and I struggle with this too. This, this is one of the reasons I don't like to look up at you, you know, i I stand back here, and I got this from reading Martin lloyd Jones's biography. He would never look up during the singing. And, and, uh, and I understand now why as a pastor. Uh, because it, you, you can lose focus when I look up and I see you. And so what are we doing? We, we are concentrating on how we're singing, what we're singing, because we are singing in the presence of God. We, when we call you to worship, the first prayer that we have is sometimes in some churches called the prayer of invocation. We, we are invoking the triune God to come into this room. Not that this room is a holy room, but that this is the room where we are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we're asking God to come and meet with us and draw near to us. This is why public worship is, is so important. It's even really, maybe even more important in some ways Sometimes in our private devotions. uh, Because this is where God often loves to really draw near to his people. is When we corporately gather together, there's something about the corporate worship of God that God is especially pleased with. And that the thanksgivings and the praises and the petitions that come corporately are are very pleasing to God. As one of the old Puritan writers used to say, that that petitions that have many signatures on it uh, often are... Are even more effectual in in the sight of God, and so what we're doing is when we come together, you you are not just uh, standing and sitting and, and and singing like this is that this is the Glee Club or something. We are doing something far more important than than the Glee Club. We 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 are we are giving God sacrifices, and the sacrifices of the New Covenant are not blood sacrifices. The sacrifices that we render to God now in the New Covenant are sacrifices of praise and honor and thanksgiving to God. The blood sacrifice has been made once and forever in Jesus Christ. And so now that the blood has atoned for our sins, we come boldly, where? Into the presence of God. The imagery that Hebrews gives us is the image of us as worshippers, going into the inner veil of the temple. Now, to understand, you had the outer court where the Gentiles could worship God. You had the inner court where the Israelites could worship. Remember the great controversy that was stirred up in Jerusalem because they thought Paul had brought a Gentile into the inner court, which he had not done. But then you had the temple itself And in there, you you had, even within the temple itself, you had the outer court and then you had the inner veil. And the inner veil, you could only go into one time a year and, and you could only go in there with blood. And only the high priest could go in there. Now, what the Hebrews tells us is that what Jesus has done as our high priest has gone into the inner veil for us. This is why when Jesus died on the cross, that that veil was split in two. That was the significance of that miracle, because by that miracle, God was showing us that now you in Jesus Christ have full access to God. In a way that's more powerful, more dramatic than even the high priest of the old covenant had. This is why Jesus said that even though John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament saints, that the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because the least in the kingdom still has access to the very presence of God. The very Holy of Holies has access into the inner sanctuary of God Himself. God now invites sinners into His presence and He will not consume them, He will not kill you, even though He justly could. But because Jesus' blood has been poured out on that mercy seat for you, he invites you, he welcomes you to come. And in fact, he even says, I want you to come boldly to the throne of grace. God invites us to come boldly to worship him in his presence. So when we gather on the Lord's Day, uh, we do so for a very important purpose. And that is to corporately come into the very presence of the living God. And these are things that require faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to worship God. And it requires faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the promises of His Word. That's what's been given to us. The promise that we will... If we will draw near to him, says James, he will draw near to you in his presence. So, boys and girls, one of the things I really want you all to see tonight is that what we do here is so significant because we are, we are drawing near to the very presence of God. You want to say, well, how do I get close to God? This is the, the, the closest way you can get to God, this side of heaven. is coming together for the public worship of his name in Jesus Christ. To sing his praises. And to hear his word preached back to you. This is the way that God draws us to himself. So it, it, this is so significant when we think about it. And I think even as a pastor, I, sometimes I think I fail to appreciate the, the real significance of what it is we are doing you have to come with the eyes of faith when you come to church on Sunday. And you have to look beyond just simply the hymn book and, and the pulpit and, and the preacher. It's, it's the very throne room of Jesus Christ, says John Calvin. When, when the minister stands up and preaches the word of God, it, he is just the herald. He's just the messenger that he's just simply declaring what the king has told him to declare in the Bible. And this is what the Bible says, and so in a sense it's not so much what the pastor has to say, it's what Jesus Christ has to say to us tonight, and that this is, in God's providence, this is the text for us tonight. This is what Jesus wants you to hear tonight. Jesus wants you to hear about worship, and he wants you to hear the significance of worship, that you should come and enter into his presence with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise, and that you come and Adore him and you worship him and you bow low before him. And this this is one of the most significant of all human activities. This is one of the most significant things that we will do in heaven. A.W. Tozer, who I was reading this week in preparation for this sermon, said that a man who, who does not worship, he's not fit for heaven. He's not ready for heaven. A man who does not know how to worship a man who does not enter into the worship of god he's not he has not there will be nothing for him to do in heaven he's not ready he's he's like a fish out of water heaven will be full of people who worship people who know something of his majesty and glory look at heavenly worship in revelation chapter 4 and 5 sometime in your free time and look at the worship look at how they worship they are, are they conscious of the presence of God in heaven? You bet they are. And what is our worship? Our worship in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament was always to be patterned after the heavenly, co- after the heavenly pattern. Excuse me. It was always to be a copy of the heavenly pattern. That's why, for example, God told Moses, make sure when you make this tabernacle, you make it exactly like I tell you. Because what you're doing is you are making a model. You are making, you are making, a representation of something of the truth of what it is to worship me in heaven. And therefore, he said, be very careful. Make sure you don't do a stitch more than I tell you to do here. Make it out of everything I tell you to make it out of. Make it exactly according to the dimensions that I tell you to make it. Because what you are making, Moses, is so insignificant, it's so important. But the idea is, what we do here is to be a a copy of, An imperfect copy, granted, but it's still to be a copy of what they perfectly are doing in heaven. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above. What are we doing? We are calling upon those who worship Him in glory. That we would enter into that worship with them. what we do here is an imperfect copy of what is done in heaven. And that's why, read Revelation chapter 4 and 5, look sometime at the elders who are prostrated. Prostrated before the throne. Now, I'm not saying that next Sunday morning you need to come out in the aisle and put yourself face down on the, on the floor. But I'll say this, that what you do with your body is important in worship. Now let me tell you what I often see when I do look up. Now for those of you listening on your iPod, I just stuck my hand in my pocket and I slouched over and put my book down, dropped my chin to my chest to look at it. Now does that look like somebody who's in the presence of God. What does the Bible say? The Bible says worship, posture, body is significant. Verse 3, the Lord is a great God and a great king. Notice in verse 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Now again, I'm not suggesting that you need to get out of your pew and prostrate yourself or even get on your knees. And and this bowing down, commentators have suggested, this bowing down is not a nice Anglican kneeling. This This is probably more what you see in the Middle East, bowing down. That that's really what's going on. But you do see, even in that posture, the way God is viewed as someone who is great. Now, it is significant. I do think we should bow down when we pray. Um, I do think that when we sing that uh, we we should have the hymnal out in front of us and we should be lifting up our, our voices to the presence of God in our midst. Uh, body posture says something. Now obviously God does look at the heart and you know you might be able to fool those around you simply with your posture there are certainly those who make a great show of things physically and and yet who are hypocrites in their heart they don't love God they simply do it for man Uh, the the, uh, Pharisees love the chief seats in the synagogue and and uh, certainly like to make great displays of, of worship, but yet nevertheless uh, their heart was far from God. So we, uh, we do need to be aware of that hypocrisy, uh, but nevertheless we shouldn't allow hypocrisy to keep us from worshiping God the best that we can. All right. I want to move on here. Notice that from verse three and five, the idea is that God is your creator. And one of the reasons you should worship him is because he who has created you also is your governor. He's your king. If you look at verse four in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his. So you think about those deep valleys and the depths of the ocean, uh, there's one in the Pacific that's so deep you can take Mount Everest and put it in it and Mount Everest would not break the surface of the water. Uh, the sea is his, for it was he who made it and his hands formed the dry land. So the, the idea is God has created the world, but God has created the universe. He has created you and me and therefore because he is our creator, we, we ought to serve him in worship. I heard this minister who was dying and uh, one of the letters he left was a thankful acknowledgement to God that God made him. And I thought, isn't that interesting? As he comes to the end of his life, one of the things he was thankful for was the fact that God created him. And I think that's what is being said here in these verses. God has created us. Come, let us worship the Lord. He's your creator. There is this natural inclination to ingratitude Within us, And we need to be stirred up. Now, I want to move on. Not only is he our creator, but he is also our redeemer. You see that in verse seven. You also see it in verse one. Let me read verse one again. Verse B, one B. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Notice there's redemption is mentioned as well as creation. And then also you see it in verse seven, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now, while all men are enjoined to call upon God as their creator, that task has been especially given to the church because the church has been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the good shepherd, John chapter 10 tells us, and we are his sheep and the sheep hear the voice of Jesus. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through his word. We hear the word of God. Effectually, it's applied to our mind and our heart. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize his voice the same way that sheep, boys and girls, will understand and recognize the voice of uh, the shepherd. Uh, sometimes those of you who own dogs, same thing. You know, stranger might be able to call the dog, but the dog isn't going to say anything. But the master calls the dog, and the dog will come. And recognizes that voice. So we, uh, so it is with us and Christ. Christ is our redeemer. We are His sheep, and the good Shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. The reason we're redeemed is because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, has laid down his life. He's given up his life on the cross. Our sins went to Jesus. Jesus was willing to die for the sheep. This is very unusual when you think about it. Shepherds often don't lay down their lives for the sheep. The hirelings run away. Good shepherds, indeed, might fight off an adversary to the sheep. But Jesus not only fought the adversary, but he surrendered his life to the adversary in order that the sheep would be delivered. Satan was hoping to scatter the sheep by striking down the shepherd. But Jesus was actually gathering the sheep to himself by laying down his life. And that was true not only of the Jews to whom he came and ministered, but he also said that he had sheep of another fold of which he was speaking about us, we who by nature are Gentiles. We are those other sheep that Jesus said of another pasture. So we see that Jesus Christ came to lay down his life for the elect, both among the Jews first, but also to us who are Gentiles. Now, the warning comes here, and I want to close with the warning In verse 7b to the end, we have been exhorted to worship God as our Creator. We are exhorted to worship God as our Redeemer. We are also called to worship God, but be careful that we not harden our hearts before Him when we hear that call to worship. If you look at 7b, it says, Today, if you would hear His voice, Now, that's not an audible voice, boys and girls, but that is the voice of the Spirit. The Spirit of God speaks to His people. The Spirit of God speaks through the Word, through the Bible, the reading of the Bible, the teaching of the Bible, the singing of the Bible, the praying of the Bible. And the Holy Spirit uses that Word to speak to us. And He says, if if you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you in the Word of God that you receive it as the word of God, you believe on it, you you receive Christ, you believe on Christ, and and you worship Him. You respond with worship, adoration, prayer, praise, thanksgiving, unto God. And that you and what the psalmist is saying here is you be careful that you do not harden your heart or harden your will against God. You be careful that when you hear the voice of the Spirit speaking through the Bible, that you don't shrug it off coldly. Some people will shrug the word off coldly. Some people will resist the word more vehemently. And then others will even react hostily to the word of God, even by blaspheming. So people respond sometimes in different ways, but each of those ways, says John Calvin, Is forbidden by what's spoken here, whether it be coldly or whether it be hotly or whether it be with great vehemence and persecution. But we are not to harden our heart. Now, what we learn here is that uh, the psalmist reminds us of their history. And that, of course, is found in Exodus chapter 17, verses 2 through 7. You don't have to turn there, but there the children of God, they've been delivered from Egypt and they're in the wilderness but they're lacking water and they grumbled against Moses and they even thought about stoning Moses to death and asked him rhetorically, have you brought us out in this wilderness to kill us? And so God told Moses that he was to strike the rock and then this scene will be repeated later when he is to speak to the rock. So you have two episodes here uh, where they are in the wilderness and he says, don't be as those People. Now, one of the things I think you need to appreciate about the deceitfulness of sin and why we need to be putting sin to death, unless otherwise sin will put us to death, is that these people are people who saw miracles. Remember, this is the generation that saw all the miracles in Egypt, all the plagues that some of you young children have been studying in Sunday school in the last few months. Uh, those plagues, they saw. This is the same people. This is the same people who saw the Red Sea. Can you imagine watching this giant ocean split into two and the land in between it becomes miraculously dry? And there are great walls of water on the right and on the left in the distance there. God has made a vast chasm in that water for a million, two million people to walk through even at the pace of the slowest in the group and hold that water back and at the same time frustrate the plans of Pharaoh who is chasing the people of God and then once the last person of the children of Israel have safely crossed to the other side of the Red Sea to cause that water miraculously being held back to collapse on Pharaoh and his chariots and on his men, killing every single last one of them. Now think about that. Think about what it was like to walk on that sand. Dry sand. Not wet, muddy sand that you're sinking into. Dry, completely dry ground. And seeing those walls of water. And think about how long it must have taken to walk through that Red Sea. I'm reminded of this. I've told you this. I'm, I'm reminded of this every time we do the Christmas caroling party at the channels. How, how long it takes us to get from one house to another house. With a group of only, uh, you know, whatever, 70, 100 of us. Think about, you know, millions of people going through the Red Sea. And what it must have been like for minutes, maybe hours of contemplation. Walking through the midst of a miracle. And they must have had their head on a swivel in unbelief at what they were seeing. And then to get safely on the other side and to see God bring the ocean back to its normal state. And to see the the bodies of the Egyptians washing up at your feet on the shore. To see the chariots uh, and the the horses dead. The men washed up, as the Bible said, that, that the tide must have carried them up. You might be tempted to think, "Wow, that having seen that, I would I would worship God every day of my life. I, I would I would serve God with everything that's within me. I, I would I, from here on, God, I, I will I will serve you and I will obey you with everything that is within me. You would think, wouldn't you? Surely, I have seen nothing greater in my life than what I have just witnessed." this past day and yet what do we find and this i think shows us the intransency of sin that the sin and the deceitfulness of it is, is so pervasive that you can watch miracles like that you can you can live through miracles like that and a few weeks later you're hardening your heart against the word of God coming out of Moses' mouth. You know, how many people say they don't believe in God? Well, what would it take you to get you to believe in God? Well, if I saw such and such a miracle, you know. I actually listened and heard a guy say, if I saw this chair levitate, I'd believe in God. But the truth is, he wouldn't, unless God regenerated him. I mean, it shows you the miracle of regeneration, is what it shows you shows you the power of the Holy Spirit. What it takes for the Holy Spirit to to make a person a believer in Jesus Christ. It's something more extraordinary than a deliverance through the Red Sea. Because these people could see the miracles. Now, think about in Jesus' ministry, the miracles that they saw. I'm astounded. The one that astounds me the most, I think, is is the one where they're gathered in the synagogue with the man with the withered arm. and, And Jesus miraculously heals this guy with this shriveled stump of an arm, heals it whole. The Pharisees are there in the synagogue, in the place of worship. They see the miracle. And the Bible says they immediately go out of the synagogue and begin to plot how to kill Jesus. That is the hardness of the heart. That is is the depravity of A fallen man. And this is what the psalmist is warning us about. Lest we think, oh yeah, but that's the Pharisees. Oh yeah, but that's the children of Israel. That was a long time ago. We're not like them. Let me suggest to you that the Pharisees and the children of Israel have the same first parents that you and I have. They have the very exact same human nature that you and I have. So when God says, when you hear his word, do not harden your heart, don't think, I'm above it. Won't happen here. Right? We saw that this morning. Who's the most confident disciple that he'll never betray Jesus? It's Peter, right? And yet, who is the one that betrays him not once, not twice, three times even with cursing, even with oaths. when no more than just a little girl was saying you surely you must be one of them. so it's an important reminder here. verse 10 hard hard verse, hard words, but we need the hard verses as well as the soft verses. For 40 years, God says, I loathed that generation. I loathed them. Can you imagine redeeming a people and then loathing them? Can you imagine saving them from a tyranny? And then hating them? And so what did God do because of their unbelief, because of the hardness of their heart? Because they wouldn't worship God. Now listen, my guess is that they showed up physically. My guess is when the tent of meeting thing happened and the cloud came down and time for Moses to go in, my guess is there might have been a crowd. But God said, I loathe that generation. Now, what we need to remember and be careful of here by way of application is that God does not have to say that eventually to us or about us. I hate that church. I hate Covenant Presbyterian Church i i I loathe it every Sunday when they get together. They open that hymnal and that psalter and they they sing it, but their heart's not there. Their mind isn't there. I hate that church. ah. Oh. Why did I bother with that church? Why did I bother creating it? Why did I bother bringing it into existence? Why did I bother? They draw near with their lips but their hearts are far away. Notice what he says. If that When it continued with the children of Israel, look how patient he was. He said, For 40 years, I hated that church, hated that generation in the wilderness. But then there came a point, verse 11, Therefore I swore in my anger, Truly they shall not enter into my rest. God had had enough. He said, I'm not bringing them into the promised land. I'll bring their children. But I'm not bringing this generation. Not with the hardness of hearts that these people have. They're not worth it. I've shown them more miracles than I've ever shown anybody. And isn't this true in Jesus' ministry? Isn't this why, as we were talking about in the high school Sunday school class, that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were going to rise up on the last day and they were going to condemn the people of Bethsaida and Chorazin? Because if they got, if the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had, been able to see the miracles that God's own people saw in Jesus. He says they would have believed that the people of Tyre and Sidon, those folks, those folks, those Yankees way up north, outside of Israel, Jesus says if they got to see and hear the things that the children of God were seeing and hearing down in Jerusalem, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. The city of Nineveh is going to rise up and condemn them because they repented at the mere preaching of Jonah and somebody better than Jonah has showed up. The queen of Sheba is going to rise up and condemn that generation because she came from a great distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, someone greater than Solomon is in their midst. And those same people are going to rise up and condemn us. If we don't enter into the presence of worship, if we don't come and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, think about this. The Spirit of God has been poured out, they're going to say. They're going to rise up and they're going to condemn us. They're going to say, Are you kidding me? You had the Holy Spirit poured out. You had the the blood of the Lamb spilt on your behalf. You had your sins forgiven. You, You had the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. We had to go to a building, even to get near to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has left the inner sanctuary of that Solomonic temple and He's poured Himself out even into your heart. He's poured Himself out upon the heads, even with and tongues of fire. And you wouldn't come into the presence of God. You wouldn't worship in spirit. And in truth, you only would worship in form. You had an external appearance of godliness, but the power was devoid within you. And how many churches are going to be condemned on the last day by saints of the Old Testament? And they're going to say, are you kidding me? You people had everything. You had every reason to worship God. You had every reason to worship Jesus. You had every reason to come joyfully on Sunday after Sunday. You had every reason to shout with thanksgiving unto God for what He's done for you. Are you kidding me? You came to worship cold You came sluggishly. You you, you came with indifference. Let it not be said that God had to swear in his wrath against covenant Presbyterian church. They were not going to enter my rest. Let it not be said. Listen to what Hebrews says. There remains yet a Sabbath rest for us. Strive for it. What is that rest? It's the rest, I believe, that God has entered into. And we are to seek the presence of God. And as we seek the presence of God in worship. Seeking God. Not just the forms of religion. Not just the the forms of orthodox worship. But seeking God through the means. The means of grace. The means are but means. They're important, but they're but means. The means are not God. God is God and the means are the way and the access to God. The singing and the praying and the hearing of the word are to bring us into the presence of God. God is with us tonight in the name of Christ. The Holy Spirit is with us tonight and he is calling us. He is wooing us and he is saying, come, come, come. Let us come and worship the Lord. Come with thanksgiving. Enter his courts. With praise, with joy, with adoration, with a confession of sins, with intercession. Seek the presence of God. Now I want to close with saying this. There is no access to God, there is no finding God, there is no coming into the presence of God without Jesus. You must have Jesus. You must say, Lord, help me, a sinner. You must believe on Jesus Christ. You must, like that woman with the bleeding problem, you must try and reach out and grab just as little of Jesus as you can possibly grab with the littleness of your faith. If you just touch the hem of his garment, you'll be saved. If you will just reach out and claim Jesus, the Bible says that you will come into the presence of the living God. Let's pray together.